Hello, and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. My name is Ray Gerard. With me in studio today, we're in a studio. This is a professional studio. We don't cut corners around here. With me in studio today, Mr. Bob Hennigas. Bob, welcome once again. Good morning. Good to see you, Ray. So uh, this is being brought to you. I, I said we're uh, actually in a, in a studio. We're, this is being brought to you in conjunction with uh, St. Joseph Radio, St. Joseph Evangelization Network in St. Charles, Missouri, who kindly does lend us uh, their studios to record these podcasts. We want to thank them very much. Uh, and this is a program where we look at issues facing America today through the looking glass of Christian thought, specifically the Christian thought as expressed by St. Paul. We compare what's going on in our country today and compare it to Christian thought, Christian principles. And we ask the question, well, where is the truth? Um, they, do these two align? Is what's going on in our country consistent uh, with what Christian teachings tell us? If it's not, which one is right, which one is wrong? Um, there is a truth. I mean, we're, this is based on the premise that there is a truth. Uh, and that there is a truth that lasts uh, from age to age, uh, place to place, that it is consistent. Because if not, then, my goodness, uh, all we've got is disorder and basically no hope. There has to be, uh, there needs to be some kind of truth to bind us together. And if you, I mean, you're the engineer, Bob, but if you look at the universe, you look at the physical laws that apply and, and, and govern the universe, there's a heck of a lot of order in the universe. It, it really is, Ray. And in, in fact, the more you study, the more you learn how wonderfully tied together and put together it is. It's, it's not just physics or it's not just chemistry or it's not just biology. You look at how all of the sciences intermingle and how well-structured it is. And that's one of the things as you learn just a little bit, you begin to realize that something of consequence had to put all of this together to miraculously work the way it does. There's nothing random whatsoever in how the universe works. And as an engineer, you can't help but make that realization and say, this is tremendous. And it works the same rules, mostly, that govern the planets and their travel also govern the electrons and the neutrons and the protons in the atom that functions, and you begin to say, wow, something really spectacular has happened here, and it's, it's kind of neat to see that. So we can see that there are these laws that govern things, physical objects, uh, as you say, the components of matter, et cetera, uh, the smallest components of matter to large planets. Uh, there are laws that govern these things. Are there also laws that govern people? If there is an order that is meant for human life, then it's important to find, to find out if we're on the right track or, or on the wrong track. I mean, is there some kind of order that we should be following? So we're going to ask that question in relation to a particular event that happened in the news just this past week. There was a, uh, a woman... Uh, she was a psychiatrist from New York City. She had an office uh, practice based in Manhattan. And she recently gave a guest talk at um, Yale University. Uh, they, had a, they have a program for guest speakers. It was uh, school, in the School of Medicine, uh, the psychology department, actually. And uh, it was a part of uh, their psychology department that focused on uh, children and children's studies. Anyways, this woman gave a guest lecture 
And uh, she made a lot of news. It was a lecture that actually took place. It was a live stream lecture that actually took place uh, on April 6th, so some time ago. But for a long time, um, you know, people knew about it, uh, the people that had attended it. But word of it hadn't gotten out. And then somebody was able to release a video of, of it. And all of a sudden, it made a lot of news, made national news. Well, why? She fantasized about killing a whole class of people. Now, there's a word for when you want to kill a whole class or race of people. Actually, it wasn't a, a whole class of people. It was a whole race of people. She fantasized about killing a whole race of people. There's a word for that. It's called genocide. We kind of generally think it's a bad idea. Um, you know, if it happens in you know Rwanda or you know, if this, you know, the Serbians or the Croatians and so forth, you know, go, you know, they, they engage in these genocidal wars from time to time. You know, if it happens someplace else, we kind of, you know, pretty much all agree mm, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Kill people just because they belong to a certain, you know, ethnicity or, or you know, national backgrounds. Not a good thing. We had a, uh, a guy named Hitler that um, – Yeah, he believed tended, in that too. Yeah, he, he, he thought, he thought he, that he, was a good idea. Yeah, yeah he, he, he was right there. Yeah. So anyways, uh, but now wait a minute, now wait a minute, now wait a minute. Um, this woman actually came out sort of in favor of that. And mm, people, a lot of people are kind of like, okay with that. <laughs> well, I, yeah, how? Why? I mean, it, does this make sense? <laughs> and so we're going to try to take a look at how this even like really happens, why it happens. And for those people who think that there are reasons to explain this, there there are possibilities, uh, possible ways to defend it. Um, are they of the same mind? Do they have any, anything, uh, the same sort of thinking that we can find in St. Paul? And if not, which one do we think might be better? Now, St. Paul uh, did write uh, in a way that relates to this. I could say he really, you know, he wrote on this subject, but not specifically, but he did write uh, on this subject in a sense. Um, and so here's, uh, here's what we have for you. It's kind of a long reading today, but I think it's worth it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and God of all encouragement who encourages us in our every affliction so that we may be able to encourage those who are in any affliction with the encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged by God. For as Christ's sufferings overflow to us, so through Christ does our encouragement also overflow. If we are afflicted, it is for your encouragement and salvation. If we are encouraged, it is for your encouragement, which enables you to endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is firm, for we know that as you share in the sufferings, you also share in the encouragement. Our hope for you is firm. I'm sure he would say that about America today as well. Uh, if we uh, learn to share in the sufferings and have, have the encouragement and the hope that he's talking about. But I, I'm, inter uh, I'm interrupting. I'm interrupting St. Paul, my goodness. That's probably a pretty brassy thing to do. Anyways, he continues, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that came to us. We were utterly weighed down beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had accepted within ourselves the sentence of death, 
that we may trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He rescued us from such great danger of death, and he will continue to rescue us. In him we have put our hope that he will also rescue us again, as you help us with prayer, so that thanks may be given by many on our behalf for the gift granted us through the prayers of many. Still not done yet, Bob. Uh, let each of us please our neighbor for the good. Let each of us please our neighbor for the good, for building up. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to think in harmony with one another. Let love be sincere, hate what is evil, hold on to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Anticipate one another in showing honor. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So there's a lot in there. There's a lot of talking about encouragement in conjunction, uh, talk of encouragement simultaneously with, um, what did I say? Did I say encouragement? There's, there's, there's simultaneous talk of encouragement and affliction. Those two don't seem to go together, but they do in St. Paul's world. If you suffer, you can be encouraged because there is something higher. There is something that will save you when it really counts. Um, there is salvation for eternity. There is something higher. There is something above us. There is something greater than us. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. This is what he believes. And so you can be encouraged even if, well, no matter what you suffer. You know, I, uh, for me, as I listen and read, it really smacks to me of truth and reality. St. Paul is basically saying the reality of the world. It is brutal. It is tough. It is harsh, right? But he is also telling us the reality of God. God is with us. He will encourage us. He will take care of us. I think for me, and it's always wonderful to me as I read St. Paul and think about him, how much he listened and understood about Jesus' life because as Jesus was being crucified, the ultimate in suffering, horrible suffering, he was encouraging John and Mary in how their life would continue to go and put the two of them together. He was encouraging those around, the good thief, and encouraging him and tell him that they would be together in paradise. So while all this horrible suffering is going on and this brutal death that he's, he's going through, he is encouraging others. He, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, actually encouraging the people that are killing him. That's the reality of God. That's the world of God. And St. Paul puts it together so brilliantly and lets us know that both sides of the world exist. We really live in that world of harsh and loving, and it is our job as people that believe in Christ to continue to present those to people and be that encouraging voice, that loving voice to try to help and encourage others even during great difficulty. Yeah, so while we live in this world, which as you say is very harsh, there's another, there's another, and it's beautiful and it's peaceful and it's full of every, nothing but love. There's another world. Now, so the question is, can we get by in this world if we don't have any sense of the other? 
So that's, that's kind of, uh, I think, going to be this, this recurring theme that we're going to be touching on today. So there's, there's this business about encouragement and affliction. It's a way to cope with, with this world. Um, as I say, uh, seemingly contradictory ideas, but yet they do go together with, if, you, if there is this, this other spiritual reality. The other thing that's involved in here, um, he talks about the many, you know, that even to, when he was afflicted where he even gave up and figured, okay, death is here, um, you know, he was rescued from it. And uh, he acknowledges the prayers of many. It's as if um, they were all and, and are all connected. They're connected in prayer. How do you connect with people in prayer if there isn't some continuum that sort of fills the, the space and fills the gap between the physical human bodies that we all see and touch and know of? There is a spirit that, 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 that continuum, that connection you know, it's spiritual, and and Paul's acknowledging it. You know, you can fill that continuum with prayer. So, and he talks about, again, harmony. You know, he talks about, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to think in harmony. I mean, these ideas go together. Yeah, we are all connected. Yeah, there is a harmony that is there between all of us if we are open to it. Affliction, encouragement, harmony. He says, hold on to what is good. Love one another. Anticipate one another in showing honor. Every, people, every other person that we meet or that we encounter is someone that is due honor from us. Honor. We honor other people. We love other people. We hold on to what is good. How can you hold on to what is good? if you don't have it in the first place. Isn't he saying here that, you know, we can make mistakes. This, this, this world is harsh, as you say, Bob, and we can screw up. But all we got to do is hold on. We don't have to go out and buy it. We don't have to go out and get it. We don't have to go out and find it. But we all, all we need to do is hold on to what is there. There is good to be held on to. There's good. I mean, this is really an acknowledgement. There is good in each one of us. People are good. There is a harmony to be found between us. And if we suffer affliction, we can still be encouraged. These are elements of the worldview of this man we call Paul that people have been reading for two millennia. Okay. And that's kind of an encouraging kind of outlook. Absolutely. Well, instead, let's go into the outlook of this one uh, this one psychiatrist uh, who spoke at uh, at Yale University back in April, and see, you know, if that view is kind of similar. So she started her talk or at near the beginning of her talk. Her name, let's say, I, I should uh, I should do some honor to this woman. Her name is Dr. Aruna Kilanani, uh, and as I said, a psychiatrist, I believe, a psychiatrist from New York City. Anyways, um, she said at the beginning of her remarks, uh, I'm going to say a lot of things, and it will probably provoke a lot of responses. And I want you to just maybe observe them in yourself. Okay? Interesting. So, um, she says, and then during the talk she said, 
we, she's talking about people of color, we are calm, we are giving, too giving. And then when we get angry, they use our responses as confirmation that we're crazy. Happens every time. You can count it down. You can count on it. She says, nothing makes me angrier than a white person who tells me not to be angry because they have not seen real anger yet. <laughs> a little bit of a warning. Um, she said, uh, I stopped watching the news. It was a public service. She said, I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body, and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away, relatively guiltless, with a bounce in my step, like I had done the world an effing favor. Um, she said, white people are out of their minds, and they have been for a long time. She said, people of color are, when they speak to white people, she said, we are asking a demented, violent predator who thinks that they are a saint or superhero to accept responsibility. It ain't going to happen. They have five holes in their brain. They, that's why they sound demented. Um, so there's a, a lot of generalization there. White, every, you know, I mean, if the essence of racism is to look at the race of a particular people and hold them all under the same characterization that you apply to that race. Uh, this is it. This is it. White people. I mean, I how many millions of white people are there in this country? Um, I don't know. Do we have 200 million white people in the country? I mean, 150 million? I don't, I don't know. I think it's at least 200. Now, you might think that each one of those, you know, persons is is kind of an individual. Maybe they've got different different feelings about different things, different ideas. Mm, no, white people, all 150, 200 million of them, they're all just white and they're all demented and they're all sick and they're all – I mean, my goodness. Um, if this is a person speaking – on behalf of anti-racism, if she is trying to encourage, St. Paul tells us, we, you know, we need to be encouraged. If she's trying to encourage us to be anti-racist, she's kind of got a funny way of doing it. Um, you know, and this business about unloading a revolver, I fantasize about unloading a revolver, and then goes on to such graphic detail. I wipe my bloody hands, and I walk away with a bounce in my step. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean... Uh, do those, you know, where do those, how do those ideas like come into your head? It's interesting because she apparently had seen a psychological therapist herself. She says that um, somebody, after she had given this, this talk and became news, some people started doing a little checking into her background. But actually, uh, there was an interview where she sort of, you know, offered this about her own past herself. She said, no, no, actually, this was in her original talk to the Yale um, audience. Um, she recalled a white therapist calling her anger on racism, quote, psychotic, um, adding that she had spent, quote, years unpacking her racism to her. Um, despite the therapist getting paid for these sessions, uh, so she said, this is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life is they suck you dry. Um, and uh, so then she says, 
that, quote, I systematically white-ghosted most of my white friends, and I got rid of the couple white uh, BIPOCs, uh, black and indigenous people and people of color, that snuck in my crew, too. So she basically um, eliminated from her own personal encounters anybody that's white. Again, you might think, well, that sounds kind of racist. I mean, if a white person were to say, I don't want to see, I don't want to have anything to do, I don't want to have any kind of encounter with a black person, I can't stand them, I don't want to be around them, yeah, you might think they're racist. Um, is this not racist? Well, of course it is. There's, there's no doubt whatsoever. And it is intriguing to me that we try to define um, the racism in one group of people so completely and don't even think about what we're saying as being, being racist. It's, it's amazing that she could actually say those things and not understand. I mean, this is a, we're living in a day and age now where we have laws. The countries have laws. Different places have laws. Uh, we have laws against hate crimes. Different countries have laws where certain speech is not allowed. Is this hate speech? I want to unload a revolver into the head of a white person. Unload a revolver, not just one shot, but if it's a six, if it's a six bullet, you know, just a revolver, then you know, hey, unload six into their head. I mean, this is um, horrible stuff. So, you know, we're also living in an age when people who say, you know, hateful things, they get banned from Twitter, they get banned from Facebook. Uh, because it doesn't meet the standards and policies, you know, when Facebook, you know, comes out with one of those announcements where they've, they've banned somebody, they'll say, well, it doesn't meet our, doesn't meet our standards. Um, there are, you know, somebody had a, a picture of, the, of Christ on the cross, and that was too violent. So we couldn't have that. Um, what about this? Do you think this would cause a problem? Well, her Twitter account is still up. Her Twitter account is still up. You know, Donald Trump has been banned for two years. Um, didn't somebody ban him for life? Uh, one of these social media outlets. I, I, I didn't I keep track of that kind of thing. But I know what, uh, Twitter or Facebook, I can't remember which one has banned him for the next two years when they'll reassess. I can't recall him ever saying, I want to unload a revolver into the head of a person of a certain ethnic... You know. He you said know. a lot of bonehead things, he's, but I don't, remember, I didn't, I don't remember that one. <laughs> I, I don't remember that. You know, if you were to do Google searches uh, for this woman's name, uh, uh, along with uh, a search term for ABC, you'll find ABC has done no stories on this event. If you Google search CBS for stories on her, you won't find it. CNN, you won't find it. MSNBC, you won't find it. So where's the outrage? Are we appalled? Are we upset? Are we as a society um, being told that this type of thing should not be allowed? Um, or if you allow it, then what's next? You know, well, I want to load a revolver into head of an Asian person. Maybe a white person comes on and says, I want to do it, you know, to, to this group or that group. I mean, <laughs> does this help anybody? And contrast that, excuse me, message from St. Paul, uh, treat, uh, treat everybody with Honor and I encourage. Think, I don't think mm, she's honoring white people. Now, you will say that, yeah, but you know, she's talking about 
uh, rage. And she's talking about being the victim of racial discrimination and that she's entitled to this rage, that we need to sympathize with the rage. Um, and I, I get that. I, I, I understand that. And of course, when any, and we've said this before on this, on this podcast, when anybody suffers, when anybody feels pain, whether it's physical or emotional, if you have the love of God in your heart, you feel that for them. And, you know, we should always strive for that. Um, but does that mean that that allows you to encourage people to violence? Um, you know, retain what is good. Is, this, is there goodness in this? You know, St. Paul says, hey, you know, he was on the point of death. And he was encouraged. Whatever affliction may come your way, you can be encouraged by God. Now, people who suffer discrimination certainly suffer afflictions. And it's easy for other people to say that, you know, they should not spout violence or anger or what have you. They should be, you know, encouraged, just, you know, believe in God and, and so forth. And in point of fact, um, you know, you, in point of fact, the strange circumstance of our reality is that the people that do suffer um, are going to be looked on by God with a lot of compassion, whereas the people that do well in this life, um, you know, not so much. I mean, how many rich people or people with who fame, people have notoriety, and you think they've got everything in this world, and then you find out, you know, they've committed suicide, you know? Um, Take the story of Lazarus. He's in hell and he, you know, and he was rich. He had everything in his life. And, you know, what did I do wrong? You didn't care for your fellow man. Um, so that's the strangeness of um, this, you know, this real reality. So in a way, you know, and in the Middle Ages, people did envy other people who suffered and have, have affliction. I mean, this is no, you know, uh, commercial for, you know, affliction. But... Uh, you know, what is the proper response to suffering affliction? Is it to, you know, encourage other people to do violence? Uh, or is it to be encouraged with the love and peace of God? Um, there are two very different worldviews that are available to us in America today. The question is, which one are we going to listen to? Well, if you answer violence with violence— very few people even have the wherewithal that I'm going to only do what somebody else does. I'm only going to be as violent as them. It normally escalates. But either way, whether you escalate it or whether you are equivalent with violence and hatred and getting back, and either way, it's a loss. Somebody's going to get hurt, and we're going to do damage. Whereas what God's putting forward is to understand that suffering, understand the suffering of this woman, whatever it is, whatever has occurred. And instead of asking for violence, asking for unloading a revolver into someone, we have to get to the point where we can still love them and stop the violence, stop the hatred, stop the anger, like Christ would, like St. Paul would, and to love them. You've, you've got to understand this woman has, has got to be hurting in a huge way that she would think about unloading a revolver into other people. That has to be horrific to sleep with, to think about. 
And I can only hope and pray that God is with her and that she can hear someone let her know that she is loved and cared for and that that violence would go away that way. Not somebody fighting back, not somebody taking a shot, not somebody throwing a rock, but to love her and encourage her. You know, uh, there are people who will say, yeah, but she was just, uh, I mean, she said at the outlet of her talk, she's being provocative. She's doing this simply for effect. She doesn't, didn't mean it. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, and so some people can, can, can take that position. As a matter of fact, the, the Washington Post did cover this. Um, and it's interesting the angle that the Washington Post had it had on it. And uh, oh, by the way, so, you know, if we're going to, you know, if we look at, if we look at what the Washington Post said, if we looked at whether or not CNN covered this or didn't cover it, um, and if we look at the reactions in society to this, you know, we can maybe learn a little bit about ourselves. I mean, certainly other people can say, well, you know, she's just one person. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe she's, you know, not, you, you can't draw generalizations from her. You can't say, well, society's got a problem because, you know, hey, she's, you know, she, she's a little, you know, she, she feels the rage too much. She's a little unbalanced, whatever. Her, psych, her therapist called, you know, called her psychotic. Other people think otherwise, you know, or, you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, if society as a whole reacts to her in a certain way or a good segment of society as a whole reacts to her in a certain way, then it's not just about her. So what does, you know, certain representatives of our culture have to say about it? Well, one of these representatives of our culture is the Washington Post. And in talking about this talk where somebody said, hey, I want to kill white people, um, the Post said, you know, after the talk made headlines, commenters called her statements racist and evil, while some declared her speech to be important. So a little bit of a moral equivalency that they're suggesting there. Some called it racist. Some said it was important. Um, Kilanani told the Post herself that this murderous fantasy she shared was a, quote, metaphor to evoke emotion. So uh, didn't really mean it, I guess. She said, my style of language is different. She says she uses a masala exaggeration for punch and, I kid you not, uh, comedy, she said. Um, it's why we love Richard Pryor. So uh, she's equating herself to a comedian like Richard Pryor. Um, I don't know. That sounds like some pretty heavy-duty spinning. Anyways, uh, she said um, that... Uh, this was, this was about feeling. Her comment was that talking to white people about race was about feeling that way and not acting on it. So that's the defense that she's making. Now, this was just provocative, like she said at the beginning. It was all about feeling the rage that black people feel but not acting on it. Now, the strange thing is that in all of the um, you know, quotations from her talk and all of the articles that I've seen on her talk, but nobody mentioned her saying that in the talk. There are a lot of people out there that are defending her. And if she had said something like that, I would think that would be the first thing that they would be using in her defense. She didn't have that in her talk, as far as I know. Not acting on it. There was another Yale professor who said, 
um, that while he respects you know her views and so forth, we can't we must we must say that we reject any kind of acting on it. He said that. She didn't. As, again, as far as I know, she said nothing about that in her talk. This is after the fact, you know, kind of comments. So the question is, should we believe her when she didn't say I mean, if she really meant it that way, wouldn't she have said that? She said, if I really believed talking to white people was futile, I wouldn't devote my time to the conscious mind of white people. I am doing it because I care. Well, there's another gentleman who read this article. Uh, if I can find what I uh, if I can find what I said about him. Oh, here he is. Uh, and this is a man. Well, I don't know if his name is in, in all that important. Um, I guess it's, whatever he referred to as Dr. K. Uh, no, anyways. But anyways, anyways, I found that there's an article where and somebody else writing about this said, um, as a fellow mental health professional, I'm trying to understand the purpose of you sharing your homicidal fantasy. To express your rage, what good do you expect to come of it? I'm a white guy. I've been one for 70 years now. Would you like to unload a round in my head? Um, he... Um, you know, he said, uh, he asked, you know, does, does, systemic white, uh, does systemic racism exist? He said, most definitely. Uh, but he also said that it just takes simple common sense to understand that what she voiced was hate speech. Um, he said he read an article about this. He first read an article about her talk in the New York Post. But then he said, he, I decided to look further for a more reliable source. He doesn't trust the Post believes systemic racism exists. He is somebody, I guess you might say, is on the uh, left side, uh, if you can draw conclusions like this from a few comments. Um, he was likely on what you might call the left side of the political spectrum. And yet, he says, I'm trying to understand the purpose you have uh, in doing this. Um, you know, he... He said, he, you know, he read this Washington Post article and, and frankly, you know, can't, can't buy it. Um, and, you know, what this, what this kind of suggests is funny. Um, so if you believe that, um, you know, there's, there's, um, there's, there's, there's a certain uh, point of view uh, that we should follow, but that this crosses the line, that we can argue for systemic racism, but, you know, we shouldn't say that, you know, all white people should be killed. It, I mean, doesn't it seem like what you're trying to do is go so far down a certain path, but then say, okay, well, we need to stop here. It's like, you know, when you play the game Simon Says, Simon says, Simon says, Simon says. People get used to, and then use, and and then you know they change they change it up, and they tell you to do something, but it's not Simon who's telling you. And well, there's a certain number of people that will still do it anyway. They'll follow, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you, like, all of a sudden tell people, okay, stop now? If you unleash anger, and rage, and hatred, with hate speech. Uh, 
how are you going to be able to tell people, okay, turn it off now? We've got to stop now. Is it not dangerous that when you use language like this, um, it's going to gin people up, and you're not going to be able to turn it off? Um, you know, there's, again, there's two different worldviews here. One is give honor to everybody. Love your enemies. Um, every, you know, there's, there's something higher than us, and it connects all of us with, in harmony and love. And then there's another view that maybe believes that to some degree, but thinks that the way we got to, the way to get to the point where we all understand this, the way we, to get to the point where we all love each other, is first to use anger, rage, and suggestions of violence, and that somehow we'll get there. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, it just seems like that's not that it'd be that you're take, not only taking a gamble, but you're probably running up odds that make it far more likely you're never going to get to where you're trying to go um, than, you know, than the odds that you're actually going to produce the opposite. You're going to gin up rage and hatred and end up somehow, somehow producing the opposite. You know, I think we, we know this, Ray. We, we know what you're saying as parents. One of the things that will cue up a child, they'll get upset. And what do you do? What, what, what's the result? Now, there's a couple things you could do, but one of the most effective that has been found out is you give a child a timeout. What does that, what does that allow to happen? You give the child some time to think and to cool off because of the rage that they have. They're upset, they're, and they've got to get to the point where they're rationally thinking again. This is nothing but irrational thought. It's hatred. It's irrational. I'm going to unload a gun into somebody just because of the color of their skin. And that's going to do nothing but pump them up into bad feelings, anger, hatred. It can't be good, right? We've got to take a time out here. We've got to make the realization that hatred on any level is bad. It's not provocative, right? You can theorize if you want, then put that in front, like you said. Make that conversation and say this is purely a thought process to get us there. This isn't real. But to actually provoke people, to get them angry and allow their emotions to be filled and high and then hope we learn something from that is absurd. That's not the way human nature works. You crank somebody up and get them all pumped up and, and, uh, and bad things occur. And then when those bad things occur, the next person's all jacked up and they're going to do things that are out of control. It leads to systemic violence. It doesn't lead to learning it doesn't lead to betterment. We know that as parents. We know that as teachers. We know that you don't enrage students. You don't belittle students. You don't take them on and tell them what they're doing is dumb, right? You stop the bad behavior. You don't take on the child in their head. You stop the bad behavior. It just seems insane to do this sort of thing. And it doesn't seem like a good learning process to me. It's just enraging. We need to stop battling, start loving, and trying to, uh, to help one another. So if you're suggesting, and, and uh, if we're both suggesting, that um, this speech uh, would encourage uh, more hate, more anger, more rage, as opposed to the kind of encouragement that St. Paul talks about, um, you know, I mean, is there any reason for, you know, for believing that this is true? 
uh, that in fact, just from speech alone, that we're going to have more problems, uh, that it will lead people to doing bad things. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, that's a nice theory. Um, can, we, can we make it stick? Well, in 1941, there was a study uh, that was done, uh, reported in the Journal of Abnormal and Social uh, Psychology. This was in 1941. And it was looking into the mentality of a lynching mob. Um, and uh, what they found uh, was that under the stress of incitation, 12% indicated an inclination to join the mob, a lynching mob. 10%, 12% of people with, when, when they were incentivized actually indicated an inclination to join the mob. 23% would go along to see what happened. 29% would have gone with the intention of deterring the mob from lynching the victims, et cetera. So there's a percentage, somewhere around a third, that kind of gets encouraged by the mob. And what they found, one of the conclusions was that the participation or deterrence is to some degree in accordance with the degree to which guilt is or is not completely established. It's tied to guilt. You can encourage people to join a mob to the extent to which guilt or is not established. There is a, uh, an occasion, uh, let's see, it was the last king of France. Uh, it is February 23rd, 1848. King Louis, the Philippe, king Louis Philippe is on the throne of France, but only for a short while still. There was a group of protesters. They were orderly, uh, and they were, they were, there was no violence. But then soldiers had fired on the crowd. And there was a journalist who wrote, the effect was electric. Each man shook his neighbor by the hand, and far and wide the word was given that the whole system must fall. Um, there's another, there's a French, um, uh, Frenchman who wrote in 1895. His name was Gustave Le Bon. And he wrote an article, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. And he wrote that the sentiments and ideas of all the persons in the gathering take one in the same direction, and their conscience, conscious personality vanishes. A collective mind is formed. This was true in the 11th century. There's a Byzantine emperor uh, who uh, suffered a revolt. Um, an account from the Times said they seemed, the people seemed different from their former selves. There was more madness in their running, more strength in their hands. The flash in their eyes was fiery. Um, you know, and then, um, uh, you know, in studying this, um, in the 20th century, um, you know, some studies kind of resulted in two schools of thought on this. There were two competing principles that under specific conditions, peacefully-minded protesters may actually act out if they're, you know, given some kind of incitation, just like this 1941 41 study said. But as a rule, impulsive violence is less likely to occur in crowds that have some structure or internal organization. So that if, in fact, uh, like, for example, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, organized a lot of protests, but there was a structure to the protest. There was an organization to the protests. And so people kind of knew what was expected and, you know, so on. There was a, there was a control mechanism. 
right? Um, but if people are given an incentive, then it can get out of hands. And according to that study from 1941, a lot of that depends on the extent to which guilt or is, is or is not established. So what do we have here? We have a situation where guilt is being established. Guilt is definitely being established. There is a, um, uh, uh, and guilt is being established on racist grounds. Simply on the basis of whether or not you're white, you're guilty. There's a, uh, uh, an article uh, just in May in the Journal of American, in, in the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, which um, said, it was a, the author of this was a guy by the name of Donald Moss, and he said, quote, whiteness is a condition, um, is a condition one first acquires and then one has. He describes it, a malignant, parasitic-like condition that renders its host's appetites voracious, insatiable, and perverse. And these appetites are nearly impossible to eliminate. You have Dr. Kilanani um, talking about uh, white people and the discrimination and that she's got such, such rage against it, she has felt you know, such, uh, so many offenses that she has to seclude herself completely from white people. You have this, uh, this man, this Dr. Moss, uh, saying basically, um, you know, that whiteness is, you know, this perverse condition. There's guilt that's being established. And if we believe that 1941 study, and a person, that study makes perfect sense. If you think somebody on the other side is bad, then you can justify doing things to stop them from being bad. And if that has to take the form of violence, like unloading a revolver in somebody's head, well, all of a sudden, that can be seen as justifiable. I mean, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff. We're not promoting harmony. We're not retaining what is the good. You know, I mean, there's a herd mentality that can be established here. And if this happens, then these comments, this way of thinking, can be justified. It can be accepted. And if, as a society, we're told that this can be accepted, you know, what's to stop us? What's going to stop us? Um, you know, so uh, this, is, this is the danger in this, is that we are going down uh, a road uh, and that, you know, maybe, you know, if these beliefs on this herd mentality and, and, and so forth are, are correct, we're not going to be able to stop it. What is going to stop us? The one thing that's going to stop us is that there is something above. They said, hey, if there's structure and there's organization to this, uh, you know, if there's some kind of a structure, some kind of organization, that can hold people back. If there's some kind of guilt that is not established, that can hold people back. Well, if you believe everybody is due honor, that's going to hold people back. If you believe there's something above us, that there's an organization, there's a structure above us, that's going to hold people back from doing harm to one another. Wouldn't it be much better to say, hey, you know, white people discriminate against black people. Um, guess what? We need to make the white people better. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is let's un unload revolvers into the heads of the white people. I mean, which one, 
which one is better here? I mean, this this is in this is verge. This is on the verge of, you know, basically creating, um, you know, sort of a psychosis in society at large. You know, if if you go back to to the scriptures and and you read, as Jesus talked, he said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer them your other cheek. He he went the exact opposite way. Our Lord and Savior when faced with hatred and harm and violence, didn't incite violence. He calmed it. He quenched it. He went the other way. It is absolutely the case, as you're saying, Ray, to enrage it, to inflame it, is wrong. It is not what God is desirous of. It's not what we as a society should be desirous of. We should be a peaceful people. We should be a loving people. We should talk about our differences and take care of one another, as St. Paul is saying, encourage one another when things are difficult, not in harming one another. Our Lord and Savior showed us that, and he showed us that over and over again all the way through his execution. He is telling us to stop this behavior, to quit being violent, to quit being harsh, to love and encourage and take care of one another. And it can't be more of a contrast of what this woman is saying and unloading a gun into someone's head and what St. Paul said us in the brilliant letter that you read and what Jesus Christ told us every day he was on the earth, right? That we have got to not be violent, hateful. We have to be loving and caring. You know, so if we're suggesting that as a society, we're becoming more and more accepting of this kind of anger, that this is justified because there's there's guilt to be assigned to uh, a whole race, um, you know. Then that would explain why um, a lot of outlets like ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC did not cover this. They don't want to report on this, and the places that do. Uh, there's an article in the Washington Post. We, we've talked about it, and it generally sort of defended this as being well. It's just provocative talk. The New York Times had a similar article. NBC, if you look for, for NBC, they did do a story on it. Um, and just going down the points, it starts off by saying that Yale University made the video a pri- made the video of her talk private. So Yale was distancing themselves from this. The, the, they quote the Yale University statement that this is not, you know, in line with their. Um, with their values, that Yale issued a disclaimer. Uh, but then they say, you know, um, Kelanani warned that she was going to provoke a lot of responses. They said that, you know, she was merely trying to engage in broader conversations. They then repeated Kelanani's accusations that white people seem to be losing it. Uh, that, you know, that when you express anger, then white people use it against you so that the anger is, expressing the anger is justified. That, they quoted her saying, nothing makes me angrier than a white person who tells me not to be angry, um, that it makes her blood boil. Um, you know, and, that, and they ended their article by saying that she, you know, um, she opposed this um, statement, uh, this disclaimer that Yale made, and the fact that they made the video of her talk only private and not public. Uh, she referred to that as suppression. And that's how this article ends. So there's... You know, while they reported on it, um, they did a lot to suggest, they said a lot to suggest 
that this was understandable, that this was to engage in broader discussions. You know, there's acceptance of this. Why is there not universal outrage and, uh, and just a rejection of this? What should be hard to understand about this? Is it not that we're becoming numbed to expressions of genocidal violence? And if we become numb to that, uh, are we not in danger of losing, losing any grip on the kind of control, the kind of structure, the kind of organization that can hold a society together, that can prevent you know, mob rule? You know, there is an alternate kind of uh, idea, and it's not an easy one, but it's like your enemies need to be honored. It's a difficult idea. But if uh, people of color were to say, if they look at white people as their enemies and say they should be treated with honor, and if white people were to look at black people and say they need to be treated with honor, if we all turned to each one of us and said, we need to be treated with honor. Boy, you know, if, if that became the herd mentality, excuse me, if that became the herd mentality, so, I mean, why don't we have that? Why do we have this instead? Anyways, there are two different worldviews, um, and excuse me if we side with St. Paul on this one. That's, uh, that's our program for today, and... Uh, to help us, I guess, conclude our thinking on this, we're going to ask uh, Bob, our, uh, our co-host, and our future deacon to uh, give us a, a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, give us your love. Allow us to embrace that love, and allow us to take that out to other people. Allow us to be your beacons to show that it is love, not violence. It is love and not hatred that you desire, heaven, when we get there, will be about nothing but love. It won't be hatred and violence. Allow us to know that at all times and allow us to try to bring that to this world, to bring this peace, this love that you give us, and allow us to always treat others with kindness and respect, not incite violence, but incite kindness and good treatment and love, just as we would our own child, just as we would our loved ones and spouses, Allow us to bring that out to the rest of the world. We pray all this through the wonderful and glorious name of your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.